evangelicals, C.S. Lewis has made the term mere Christianity very famous. And, and really mere is a Middle English term meaning unmixed, unadulterated. Uh, so it doesn't have the sort of modern uh, meaning of diminution, of something being less than or less significant, uh, but rather not adulterated, not mixed with something that it is not. So when Lewis writes Mere Christianity, he's really wanting to talk about universal, historic, orthodox Christianity, unmixed by doctrinal um, um, preferences within given denominations or, or, or Christian sects. He's wanting to look at what is common to all Christians everywhere and at all times. Uh, I think of Thomas Oden's terminology of classical Christianity or historical ecumenical orthodoxy. All of these things are getting us in the target area for what Lewis wants to talk about. I think speaking of Odin, uh, doesn't Odin even quote uh, St. Vincent of Lorenz in the 5th century? Shall I do the Latin? I'm going to try the Latin. Quod ubique, quod semper, quod ab omnibus creditum est. And this is the rule of Catholicity for St. Vincent's, that um, we want to focus on that which has everywhere and by everyone and at all times been believed. So that's universal orthodoxy, and Lewis is really setting up his book on mere Christianity to say this is the main focus. All denominational interests, uh, worship styles, and so on are secondary compared to that. And of course, Lewis, being an intellectual, being a thinker, being an apologete, um, and being a good churchman in the Church of England, uh, goes to universal Christianity. He often mentions the Nicene Creed as sort of a symbol of that uh, understanding of basic Christian beliefs that was hammered out in the early centuries of the church and the great councils and, uh, that were attended by appointed bishops and uh, um, clergy and theologians of the church so they could hammer out such important doctrines as Trinity, Incarnation, and so on. So that's, that's the focus. I think there's a real benefit in um, recapturing that sense today that, um, I mean, even Jesus uh, in his high priestly prayer prayed that his church be one, that his people be one, and not just in belief, although that's kind of the accent with, with uh, the Nicene Creed and, and other doctrinal things that form universal Christianity, but that belief framework provides guidance for how we exercise our faith and live out our Christian journey. So it is important to be as clear as we can be on what's essential, what's basic, and what's universal. Now, Lewis, of course, as we mentioned, was a thinker, uh, an apologete, a spokesperson for Christianity. And for him to kind of put mere Christianity or classical orthodoxy at his foundation intellectually was another way really of recognizing that it's not just matters of assent that are built into orthodoxy that the faithful are asked to adhere to, but that the belief system of orthodoxy is rich. 
It's intellectually potent and powerful. And if we kind of learn how to draw those implications and themes out of orthodoxy, we can, I think, engage effectively all of the intellectual issues that are coming up in our culture, whether it's the problem of evil and suffering, or the problem of whether science invalidates religious belief, and so many other issues that we see in our culture affecting those to whom we minister, uh, affecting how laity in our culture uh, look at the credibility of Christian faith. Lewis is saying, don't focus on minor things, sectarian ways of, of representing Christianity. Try to go to its deep riches and learn what the intellectual um, insights are that come out of those deep riches of, of Trinitarian doctrine, incarnational thinking, sacramental thinking. Lewis was so big on all of this kind of thing and, and his sort of uh, nomenclature for that was this is mere Christianity. Now one of the things we mentioned just a minute ago was that uh, Lewis believed in Trinitarianism. That was, that was for him, I think, the heart and center of orthodoxy, kind of like the frame or the framework within which all other doctrines fit. And Lewis is not worried so much just to say we must believe in the Trinity, but that belief in the Trinity should guide us into the life of the Trinity. For for Lewis, Christian life is participation in the life of God. It's for us to allow ourselves to be drawn into the very life of God. He's got a wonderful image um, sort of near the end of, of mere Christianity where he talks about this. He says, the life of God is not static. He says, the life of God is dynamic. It's a self-living, self-giving, eternal life. And it has eternal relations of joy and peace and love going on forever within the life of the persons of the Trinity. Now, if we, who don't have by our uh, sort of intrinsic status as creatures, we don't have love and joy and peace intrinsically. Instead, we must get them. They have to be donated to us. We have to live into the life of God. So Lewis says the, the life of God is like a great fountain of energy. The Trinitarian life is like a great fountain of energy springing up at the core of reality, at the center of it all. We who are creatures don't have um, love and joy and peace intrinsically the way the Trinitarian life does. So for Lewis, we have to let ourselves be drawn into that life. Just like if I were standing near a fountain, I might get wet. I might even get into the fountain to get wet. And so Lewis says, likewise, that great fountain of energy and beauty that is the Trinity springing up uh, at the heart of reality, if I'd like to have love and joy and peace, I'd better get close to or into the thing that has them. And once a person has, has moved into that life, what could he do but to live forever with joy and peace? And if a person re remains a stranger to that life, what could he do but wither and die?